Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Before we get started, I wanted to share a new feature on our site that I hope becomes a good resource for you. I created an index page that has keywords, topics, concepts, and where you can find those ideas in our episodes. For example, the word race is indexed, and you can find conversations on race in episode 9, episode 12, episode 17, 19, 20, 27, and this episode, episode 28. Or if you're interested in social justice, anti-racism, language diversity, and language rights, all those words are indexed and many more. So be sure to check that out on pedagogpodcast.com. Again, that's pedagogpodcast.com. As some of you know, those keywords have been at the heart of many pedagog episodes. As a grad student, I was lucky to land at Fresno State and work with my good friend, Asal Bionoy, from 2012 to 2014. And that was right around the time Race and Writing Assessment was published, Asal and Maya Poe's co-edited collection. So my teaching and research has really been influenced by Asal and many others who do great work on social justice and anti-racism. If you're out there listening, and if you're ever interested in having conversations around social justice and anti-racism, please feel free to reach out to me. You don't have to be on the podcast. I would just be happy to sit down and listen and chat about anti-racist practices. So please let me know if you need anything. You can always fill out the contact form on our site. In this episode, I'm joined by Frankie Condon, and we talk about centering writing classes and writing centers on anti-racism building sustainable spaces committed to language diversity, and how to incorporate class assignments that complement this kind of work. This conversation was recorded in September 2019. Frankie Condon is an associate professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at the University of Waterloo. Her books include I Hope I Join the Band, Narrative Affiliation and Anti-Racist Rhetoric, Performing Anti-Racist Pedagogy in Rhetoric, Writing, and Communication, co-edited with Vershawn Ashanti Young, and The Everyday Writing Center, a community of practice, which she co-authored. Most recently, Frankie has been the recipient of the Federation of Students' Excellence and Undergraduate Teaching Award and the Outstanding Performance Award for Excellence in Teaching and Scholarship from the University of Waterloo. Frankie is a member of the newly formed Aptly Outspoken Collective. Frankie, thank you so much for joining us. You have been such a great contributor to social justice and anti-racist practices and language diversity in writing studies and writing centers. I was hoping we could begin by you talking about what got you started in this work, and then maybe you could talk more about how. And I'm thinking specifically how writing centers and writing classes and writing programs can build a space committed to inclusivity and diversity and anti-racism. Perhaps some of us are thinking or asking the question, where do we start and how do we develop centers and classes and programs in the most sustainable way? So... I want to make the how did I get into this brief. There's a personal aspect to that part of the story that I've written about in some depth in I Hope I Join the Band. 
Um, so I'm not going to retell that part. So what I'll say about that is that when I was in graduate school, I already had this commitment to anti-racist activism that was driven by my own family story, my personal history, and my relationships. And I was going to the University at Albany. I was working with a group called the Dismantling Racism Project. And really what we were doing is anti-racism training, predominantly in the medical and social services community in Albany, New York, particularly with those agencies and groups that were working with queer people of color who had HIV AIDS and making sure that they were culturally competent, culturally aware and coming to that work from an anti-racist perspective. So I was moving out of graduate school. I got a job directing the writing center at Siena College I was writing my dissertation and it became increasingly clear to me that I could not proceed as an academic treating that activism work as if it was somehow unrelated to the work I was doing in the academy. I saw the necessity for that kind of activism, for that commitment to anti-racism in the writing center I was directing every day, in the classrooms in which I was teaching, in my conversations with colleagues in the ways that the institutions in which I was working were arranged and who they were privileging. So I just made a commitment to myself that I was never going to behave as if my work as a writer, as a researcher, as a teacher, or as a writing center director and scholar was separate from my work as an anti-racist activist. And so that was 25 years ago or so. And I've just tried to live that way to the best of my ability. Everywhere I go in the world, this is what I believe and this is the work I try and do. So that's kind of how I got started. Now with regard to the how do we start and how do we sustain, some of the things I think about are maybe my first gut reaction is or gut response is I really love the work that Miles Horton does. Uh, And Miles Horton Uh, has a phrase that I love and admire, which is, uh, he says, we make the road by walking. And so one first response is, well, how do you start? Well, you just do. You just start, right? But maybe that's too fast and maybe that's too simple. So maybe you start walking in order to make the road and maybe then you ask, who are my people or who are our people, right? Because I think one should never do this work for others, One should always do it with others. So who are the people with whom I can conjoin the work that I'm doing in my writing center or that we in our writing center can conjoin with? So I look across an institution and I think, well, you know, the uh, Multicultural Student Services Office is doing anti-racism training. Perhaps I can work with them. And so I go visiting people. The Faculty Development Center has somebody who's doing something. So I go visiting people. Oh, I know this group of faculty are meeting and talking. I go visiting people, right? And so the job in some way is to start making connections with people, allying with people and acting in solidarity with folks, building relationships with them. I'd say another way to begin and to make the work sustainable in a writing center is to put it at the center. So it can never be peripheral and be sustainable, right? It's not 
I'll add a unit to my tutor training course or I'll slap a reading in there. It really has to be at the center of the conversation and the center infused into all of the work that I'm doing and tutors are doing, right? And then the last thing I'd say about sustainability, and then I'll let you ask follow-up questions if you want to, is you get tired, right? One of the biggest challenges to sustainability, I think, is the wear and tear of emotional labor and intellectual labor in doing the work. And so this is part of why I say you must always do it with people. First of all, doing it for people is that weird kind of benevolence that actually does more harm than good, right? And that often has the effect of making people, white people in particular, feel better about themselves, feel like they're a better sort of white person without actually having any effect on systemic racism or institutional racism. But you get tired no matter what. So back in the day when Michelle Udici and Meg Carroll and Beth Bouquet and Ann Ellen Geller and I were working on well, on our book together, uh, we talked a lot about the Peloton, which, you know, if you are familiar with bike racing, you might know about the Peloton, right? So there is a racing team and one person takes the front and they take the wind so that the people coming behind can ride with less wind resistance. And then when they get tired, somebody moves up to the front and takes the wind for the rest of the people. I like Canadian geese do this too, right? When you see geese flying in a V formation, there's one goose taking the lead and they're taking the wind and they take the wind for the other geese until they get tired and then they fall back and another goose takes the lead. I think we need this in activist work and in particular in anti-racism work, right? So no one person is at the front of the peloton for too long. And when people get tired, there's somebody who can move up to the front and take the win. And of course, we need to be thinking about the degree to which so often people of color are put in the position of taking all the wind all the time. So there's some white people doing anti-racism work need to be sensitive to when it's time to step up and take the wind without engaging in that illiberal benevolence, being with, not for. That's such a good answer and response, Frankie. Thank you. Incredibly insightful. Being an advocate and activist and anti-racist must be at the center. I like how you talked about this as a communal effort and knowing when to step up and take the wind and knowing when to come alongside, when to support. You mentioned walking the road with others, learning, listening, engaging. I'm interested in how you do this work with students in writing classes and peer tutors at the writing center. Engagement from the center with the center, right? And also, and simultaneously looking outward. I think I was just talking with, uh, students this morning about this, right? There's that turn of phrase that people will say, you know, change starts by being the change you want to be in the world, right? It starts with the individual. And I tend to think that that kind of inward turn is always necessary and always insufficient, right? And you never get to a point individually in your work on yourself where you could be like, dude, I'm done. I have the Purdue stamp of approval and I no longer need to work on this anymore. So now I'm ready to work on systems and institutions, right? That work is always 
mutually contingent and interdependent, yeah? So we want, as individuals inside the Writing Center, to be thinking about who we are and what we're doing and the ways in which we are invested in racialist, racialized and racist ideologies with regard to language and teaching uh, in higher education or high school education, if those are the right centers that we're in, right? We want to be thinking about what our particular institutional site is and what its complicity is or culpability is in broader institutional systems of racism or marginalization and exclusion. Uh, and then we want to be looking outward too at the institution as a whole. So one of the things in particular, concretely, that we could talk about is I want tutors to think carefully and critically about the languages for which they advocate as they're working with writers in a writing center. So when we say to a student writer, for example, you really have to write things in this way because I'm not a racist and I like your home language and I think it's fabulous, but the teacher down the hall is a racist. Then effectively we're acting as functionaries for the racist down the hall, right? So I'm not sure how that makes us not complicit. Or, you know, we say, well, your, your employers will require, right, that you do this, that, or the other thing because they're racist, not me. We're being functionaries for racism in the business world or the professional world or whatever. And what people like Rashawn Young and Asao Inouye and Asia Martinez and Elaine Richardson, Geneva Smitherman, to name just a few, Victor Villanueva, are saying about the home discourses of peoples of color is uh, those discourses are always being appropriated by predominantly white communities, retors, right? But somehow white folks get a pass on appropriating those discourses. And all you have to do is have a black sounding name or a Chicano sounding name and you don't get the pass. So we need to think in more complex and critical ways about the languages for which we're advocating. What's the most entrenched resistance that you've experienced as a teacher scholar who is doing anti-racist work? The most entrenched resistance has seemed to me to be driven by the fear of white folks. That fear, from my perspective, had in large part to do with a kind of worst case scenario thinking. So if I do this work from my position as writing center director, I'll get fired or uh, the provost won't like me anymore or the teachers won't send their students to the writing center anymore or people won't like me anymore. This was many years ago. Beth Godby and Moira Ozias and I did an anti-racism workshop before a, a Midwest Writing Centers Association conference. They had a workshop day, kind of like Four Cs does. And we did a half-day anti-racism workshop. What was really interesting to me about that workshop was a moment when we asked participants to reflect on what prevents you from starting? What prevents you from trying? To the best of my recollection, I think there were two women of color in that workshop and all the rest were white women. And all of the white women talked about these fears about, you know, people won't like me. My 
writing centers already marginalized in my institution? What if it gets more marginalized? Two women of color in the workshop talked about fears for the safety of their children, experiences with lynchings, both literal and metaphorical. So I often think that white people don't start or they resist because they're living a failure of their imagination to see a world beyond the impossible. I think that problem of what if I lose what little power I have is extraordinary piece of resistance, right? A place where people really get stuck. Cornell West has a wonderful, is a wonderful essay and he's been doing over the last several years a series of YouTube videos where he talks about the difference between idealism, optimism, and hope, in particular, optimism and hope. And he says, you know, optimism is the practice of saying things are really going to get better, no matter how much evidence there is to the contrary. But what West says is the person or the group that has hope is the person or group that contends with the evidence of oppression that contends every day with the evidence of racism. That's where hope lies. So maybe paradoxically a little bit, the overcoming one's own resistance or helping scaffolding so that other people can overcome their own resistance has to do with getting them into contending with the evidence that it's real, right? So that I think in some way is where the guts of the work is, is real. And we're all in it, right? And we're all complicit. We can't write ourselves out of the story by fiat. How does this anti-racist work play out in your classroom practices? Say, for example, your writing assignments. I'll talk about a, a couple of different assignments and some assessment strategies. And I'll offer the caveat that none of this is perfect, right? None of it works perfectly all the time. Or I fail at it all the time, right? And so I'm just always on the quest to learn how to do it better next time. This semester, for example, I'm teaching a first-year writing class. It's an introduction to academic writing. And all of the students in my class are math or computer science majors. So the first assignment that we're doing, I actually have adapted from an assignment that I found in a book called What Makes Writing Good. This is a really old edited collection. And in this edited collection, uh, Jim Sled, who he was an old time compositionist, just an irascible, radical Marxist who constantly annoyed people in his writing and in his talks at seas and stuff because he was just fierce. And he talked about the the masters of composition. Right. <laughs> and I, oh, I loved him so much. And he was very, very kind to me. So I have a soft spot. But he included a piece in this book with permission he had taken from a friend who was teaching at Claflin College. And the assignment was write four dialogues. Each dialogue should reveal something new about the writer, some new aspect that they would want people to know about them, right? So the first dialogue would be with a police officer, the second with a prospective employer, the third with a best friend, and the fourth with a small child. And the writing sample that uh, Jim Sled includes with this assignment is one that's written 
in African-American English or an African-American English, oftentimes if I've used that in a writing center theory and practice course, the first response of, of prospective tutors is to fix and change that writing, to talk about how they would tutor that person in order to make that and to sort of straighten up that prose, right? But of course, that's a problem because the assignment asks the student to reveal things about themselves, right? And what in this particular writing sample shows about this writer is that when confronted by the police, he is inclined to call out the racism of the police rather than capitulate to it and to do it in a, in a fierce kind of street way, right? And that, and that he shifts his mode of address in talking with the perspective of employer, but does so without trying to step out of who he is. He's just performing it in a different way, right? And you can sort of see this happening in each of the dialogues that this student writer has produced, right? The first assignment for my class this semester is to write that set of dialogues for themselves. This is a pretty diverse classroom, but it's not diverse in the sense that there are African-American students in my classroom. There are African-Canadian, Caribbean-Canadian students, Chinese-Canadian students, and so on, right? So it's diverse in a slightly different way. But my, my prediction is that they're going to write these dialogues and as best they can, they're going to make them all the same and try and sort of wipe out all of those differences in discourse that they would in fact use if they were talking to their best friend or they were talking to a small child. Or, and so then we're going to work on putting those things back in. How do you do that thing where you recognize this is how I would actually talk to a police officer. This is how it's different than how I would talk to my best friend. And this is what those differences reveal about me, that I want an audience to know of who I am, how I represent myself, who my audience is, and what I want them to know, and my agency in revealing or withholding. So that's a first assignment. And then the last assignment is called the Funk It Up assignment. They read Vershawn Young's Should Writers Use They Own English? And that we sort of investigate the debate between Young and Stanley Fish. And then they can choose one of the pieces of writing they've done throughout the term. And their job is to learn how to code mesh, which of course requires that you understand uh, how sentences work much more deeply than if you simply write correct white sentences, right? Or standard academic English sentences. You can't sort of fake it. You have to actually learn how to do it. To write in an academic context or to write in a professional context should never mean that you leave yourself and your home language and home discourses at home. Those should come with you. The question is how to use them in ways that are fun, creative, and smart. So obviously this type of work goes a lot deeper than writing assignments. You mentioned earlier how anti-racist work has to be at the center. So I'm interested in the conversations you have with students about language and languages and languaging, because I know that has to be a central part of this work in the writing classroom. It seems to me students come to my classroom having already deeply internalized the notion that in whatever ways they're home languages or home discourses diverge from what they've been taught is standard academic English or a normative English, a white English, 
they are wrong. And so in order to make some determination about the use value of their work, they have to contend with that and unlearn that notion that what they have to say and how they have to say it is always inevitably wrong and relearn how to engage with the work of writing in ways that have meaning and value to them, that are useful to them, where they have agency and get to define the terms for what counts as good writing. In some way, I think that to begin with the what makes writing good assignment, the dialogues, and to end with the funk it up assignment requires that in between, we talk about how it is that we have learned such a dysfunctional notion is that what we have to say and how we have to say it is inevitably wrong. Not only is it inevitably invariably wrong, it's wrong because we are not the people that we should be. We're not performing our subject position in a way that's dutiful and obedient. What they've been taught to think of their own writing and their agency with regard to their writing is invested with sort of sticky stories about who they are who they're capable of being and who they should be that are dysfunctional at maybe at best and at worst oppressive, right? I'm reminded of your co-authored article, Building a House for Linguistic Diversity. And here's a quote from that piece. You write, if our fear of failure leads us to inaction, we will have failed catastrophically. If we proceed with courage, as well as with an ongoing commitment to learning, we may fail, but we will learn from our failures such that we can do better next time. Building a culture that resists, a classroom culture, and a program culture, and a writing center culture, that resists white supremacy, that embraces anti-racism and works towards social justice, is ongoing work. It's hard, but it's good, good work. Do you mind sharing a time when you look back at something? Maybe what others or even yourself at the time considered a failure, but then you said, hey, we can learn from this and we can do better. In a certain kind of way, I, I wanna laugh, not because that question is foolish, but because you know that moment happens every moment for me, <laughs> right? I don't think I ever get to the place where I'm like, Ooh, I'm really good at this. <laughs> but one example of a we can do better next time that I think is important with regard to the writing center world is, you know, the effort of writing center folks, both at the regional organizational level and at the international organizational level to start anti-racism or anti-oppression SIGs as part of conferences. And in particular, as part of the International Writing Centers Association Conference. And so, you know, when we were first starting up the anti-racism SIG at the IWCA, the first time we met at a conference might have been Houston. It's a long time ago, you know, and there weren't a lot of people there. And we had done a lot of talking about what to do in that SIG and how to make it work. But all of us having that conversation about what to do and how to make that SIG work were white, but we were just gonna try and get it started. We were just gonna try and make the way by walking, right? And so we had the SIG meeting and there was some really awesome conversation and some very weird conversation because that's kind of what happens. And then we were done and we were like, well, but all we've done is talk. We've just had a, con we've just had a yak 
but we haven't actually done anything. And honestly, we spent years figuring out how to create a SIG that would actually do things that would actually in some way impact on the organization, the International Writing Centers Association, uh, that would impact on the resources available to writing centers, uh, tutors and directors uh, who compose that organization. So I don't think that work has ever ended. Every SIG meeting I've ever been to has been a, okay, let's try this and then see if we can keep the work going, right? And in some way, the best thing that's happened is as we've tried to make the way by walking in terms of the anti-racism SIG, more and more young people have who are coming into the field, maybe they're first coming in as tutors and then they start a master's program and then they're uh, in a PhD program and then they're directing their own writing center. But more and more young people start coming into the SIG with energy and interest and investment and ideas and all the places where those few of us who began the SIG were stuck, they could see a way through. Do you know? Thank you, Frankie. And thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.